If they want to take the vaccine, it is available to them. If they decide not to, the state should not punish them. So I thank you for your leadership on this issue, Governor. Thanks, Lawrence. It is America, the land of the home and, and freedom reigns. <laughs> Easy for him to say. From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Elsewhere in California, on KFOI Red Bluff Redding, KKRN Round Mountain, KGOE Eureka. In Oregon, on KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO in Cottage Grove, KEPW in Eugene. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU, Columbus, Ohio, WGRN. Palinville, New York, WLPP, Rochester, New York, WRFZ, in New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, Seattle, Washington, KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR, Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM950, KTNF, and coast-to-coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing the globe five days a week, usually hosted by Brad Friedman of Bradblog.com, but he is in construction hell right now as they are tearing up concrete around the studio. So if it was a choice between the jackhammers and me, well, you got me. I'm Nicole Sandler. I host the Nicole Sandler Show based at NicoleSandler.com, and I'm your reliable guest host for the broadcast. There's a lot of news going on today. We'll get to that. And a few weeks ago, President Biden announced that he would make good on the promise to withdraw our troops from Afghanistan. After all, it's more than about time. And he said he'll have it done by September 11th, the 20th anniversary of the attack. That makes sense. Well, now we get word that the drawdown is going faster than expected. So I thought today would be a good time to talk about war. Because you know what it's good for. Absolutely nothing. Thank you. That's what I was going to say, but he said it better. Anyway, I had the opportunity to speak with David Vine. David Vine is the author of three books on the subject of war, more specifically, the United States' involvement in war throughout history and today. So we'll get to that a little later this hour. We'll also have a moment of levity aimed at preparing you for Memorial Day weekend. I know so many of us have been stuck at home, you know, for over a year already. Well, in this case, we're going to get some kids' point of view about their parents perhaps overindulging when they finally get to see their friends again. And I suppose I should tell you who that was at the top of the show who so eloquently recited a line from our national anthem or not. (laughs) 
This was the quote, in case you missed it. If they want to take the vaccine, it is available to them. If they decide not to, the state should not punish them. So I thank you for your leadership on this issue, Governor. Thanks, Lawrence. It is America, the land of the home and, and freedom reigns. <laughs> well said, Governor Kemp. That actually aired on Fox, not news. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp. Just in case you were wondering. Now let's move on to the news. Another victim of Wednesday morning's mass shooting in San Jose has died, bringing the number of people killed to nine. Authorities said the gunman, identified by several sources as a maintenance worker at the Santa Clara Valley Transportation Authority light rail hub, killed himself as police arrived. President Biden responded with a statement saying, quote, enough. Once again, I urge Congress to take immediate action and heed the call of the American people, including the vast majority of gun owners, to help end this epidemic of gun violence in America. But don't expect Congress to treat our gun epidemic like the emergency it is. The House has already gone on a three-week break, and the Senate is set to leave Friday for Memorial Day and the rest of the week, but has three major issues to deal with first, and none of them are related to the gun and mass shooting epidemic. The first order of business is the one that's gotten the least media attention, and it has to do with China. The U.S. Innovation and Competition Act is set for a cloture vote to cut off debate Thursday morning. If it passes, that sets up more debate and a full Senate vote. Waiting in the wings is a procedural vote on the bill calling for the creation of a bipartisan January 6th commission. That won't happen, though, until they first resolve the China issue. It is expected that the Senate will get to the vote on Thursday, but Republican leadership is opposed to it, and it doesn't appear that 10 Republican senators are open to voting for it. If they block the bill, Nancy Pelosi must decide if she'll appoint a select committee, though that decision won't come immediately. If Republicans do block either of these bills, it'll mark the first use of the filibuster to stop legislation this year in the Senate, and it'll certainly once again spur discussion of changing the filibuster rules. Senator Dick Durbin, the second ranking Democrat in the Senate, said, quote, we have a mob overtake the Capitol and we can't get the Republicans to join us in making historic record of that event. That is sad. That tells you what's wrong with the Senate and what's wrong with the filibuster. So you know the name Sicknick, Brian Sicknick. He's the U.S. Capitol Police officer who died after clashing with the rioters during that January 6th attack. Well, his mother is now asking Republican leaders for meetings to convince them to back the proposed commission to investigate what happened. The third piece of Senate business on the table is the infrastructure bill. Republican Shelley Moore Capito of West Virginia has been heading the Republicans' negotiations with the White House. On Thursday morning, at a press conference, she unveiled a revised counteroffer for the infrastructure spending, outlining a roughly $928 billion package that is still very far short of what the White House has proposed. This plan allocates about $500 billion for roads, $98 billion for public transit, $46 billion for passenger rail, and more than $70 billion for water infrastructure. Republicans also recommended additional spending for ports, waterways, airports, and broadband connectivity, maintaining their belief that any package 
should stick to what they describe as traditional infrastructure. The problem is, though, that this package uses unspent COVID relief money already approved by Congress, an idea opposed by the White House. And if you're wondering why, well, the White House believes that much of the unspent COVID money should go toward hospital payments for rural health care providers and state and local aid. Plus, they say it only amounts to about $200 billion, which is nowhere near the trillion dollars that Republicans want to spend. New York Times is reporting that during the two weeks of clashes in Israel and Gaza this month, the Anti-Defamation League collected 222 reports of anti-Semitic harassment, vandalism, and violence here in the United States. That's compared with 127 over the previous two weeks. Incidents are, quote, literally happening from coast to coast and spreading like wildfire. That, according to Jonathan Greenblatt, chief executive of the Anti-Defamation League, who continued saying, quote, until the latest surge, anti-Semitic violence in recent years was largely considered a right-wing phenomenon driven by a white supremacist movement emboldened by rhetoric from the former president, who often trafficked in stereotypes. Many of the most recent incidents, by contrast, have come from perpetrators expressing support for the Palestinian cause and criticism of Israel's right-wing government. President Biden has asked the U.S. intelligence community to double down on efforts to investigate the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic in Wuhan, China, and report back to him in 90 days. This latest push came after renewed attention to the possibility that the virus might have escaped a Chinese lab. The possibility was long considered a fringe conspiracy theory, but it gained credence recently when new information came to light about hospitalizations of three lab workers weeks before the first cases were reported in Wuhan. Meanwhile, a study has revealed that the majority of severe COVID-19 cases brought on long-term symptoms. While that's not good news, U.S. officials hope that the warning will encourage more people to get vaccinated. Oh, and in Japan, the government is supposed to decide by Friday whether to extend a state of emergency across much of the country, which is just two months away from the planned start of the Tokyo Olympics. Many are calling for the games to be canceled. Stay tuned. Well, score one for climate activists who prevailed in two major victories over oil companies. A small hedge fund called Engine Number no. 1 unseated two ExxonMobil board members on Wednesday in a push to force the oil company to make changes to join the fight against climate change. Investors have increasingly expressed concerns that the energy industry isn't doing enough to change business strategies to address global warming. Eight of Exxon's nominees were elected to spots on the 12-member board, as were two Engine Number 1 nominees. This marks the first time ever that America's largest oil company has faced such a challenge, and it sends a message to other oil companies that investors are not afraid to act on the possibility of shifting away from fossil fuels. In the other victory, a Dutch court ruled that Royal Dutch Shell must dramatically reduce its carbon emissions by 45% by 2030 from 2019 levels. This is the first time a court has ruled that a company must reduce its emissions in line with global climate goals, and the decision could have far-reaching implications 
for other oil companies. And it's that time of the year. The Supreme Court seems to hold its biggest decisions for the very end of the term at the end of June. So today was the last day in May that the court is announcing any decisions. And since there are still a bunch from November that haven't yet been announced, the court watchers expected something today. Still outstanding from November are Borden versus the United States, which is the Armed Career Criminal Act, Fulton versus Philadelphia, that's a religious foster care agency and LGBTQ rights case, And the biggie, California versus Texas, that's the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, the Supreme Court, this court, could still strike down the Affordable Care Act. Those decisions have not yet been announced. But today, we we didn't get any of those. Today was kind of a letdown. They only announced the decision on one case, which was San Antonio versus Hotels.com. It was a unanimous decision, the opinion written by Samuel Alito, and it was regarding whether a district court has the discretion to deny or reduce appellate costs. The answer was no, unanimously, upholding the decision of the Fifth Circuit Court. See what I mean? (laughs) They usually announce decisions on Mondays and Thursdays when it gets down to this time of year. This Monday, of course, is Memorial Day, so that won't happen. So now we wait. We'll be waiting at 10 a.m. Eastern for the next few weeks to find out how this court rules on those outstanding cases. At the beginning of this segment, I told you what the Senate was up to today. Well, now I've got an update. So remember, when I started this segment, I told you about three issues that the Senate had to deal with before they can leave for their Memorial Day vacation. The first one that they need to get past in order to start working on the other two had to do with combating China's competitiveness. The bill is called the Innovation and Competition Act. Well, let me share with you the alert that just crossed my desktop from the Hill. The Senate on Thursday advanced legislation aimed at combating China's competitiveness after Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer cut a deal breaking an hours-long stalemate. The vote caps off a dramatic 24 hours as Schumer and Republicans scramble to try to save the bill, restyle the Innovation and Competition Act after some Republicans threatened to make it their first successful filibuster of this, the 117th Congress. Senator Chuck Schumer struck a deal with Mike Crapo, 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 of Idaho to allow for a vote on a trade amendment, sending the bill on a path to passage. There's still a few procedural votes ahead and potentially lots of debate, but this vote sets up the Senate to pass the bill soon. So now the Senate can move on with the procedural votes on the other two issues that they have to rectify in some manner before they leave, like the George Floyd Policing Reform Act. Uh, The sticking point remains the issue of qualified immunity. CNN now reporting Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee are objecting to changing the qualified immunity protections. Senator John Cornyn said, we're already having trouble recruiting police and police are retiring early. What we're talking about now is making it possible for trial lawyers and people to sue for money. I haven't heard a specific proposal that I can agree with yet. Again, that's John Cornyn. Now I go from the news 
to opinion. I'm Nicole Sandler saying that John Cornyn is wrong. He's wrong. Dead wrong. It's not about the trial lawyers and, quote, people to have the ability to sue. It's about victims of police violence and abuse. I thought it was all about no one is above the law. Cops do not have the right to assault people without consequences. They just don't. Or more accurately, they shouldn't. And there's news on the infrastructure deal. Here's the latest from Politico. While the White House and Senate Republicans remain far apart, both sides are signaling that they're not willing to give up yet. Memorial Day deadline be damned. President Joe Biden said he spoke with Senator Shelley Moore Capito this morning and that he would meet with her and Republican negotiators next week. Biden did, though, signal that the time is running out. He said, quote, we're going to have to close this down soon. Capito on the Hill spoke to reporters saying that she had a very positive talk with the president this morning and said, quote, I got clear direction from him that was so good. And then Mitch McConnell telling MSNBC that he's open to spending more. Asked whether the submission by a group of Republican senators earlier this morning was a final offer. McConnell said, no, we're going to keep talking. Okay. We've also gotten a look at what President Biden's budget will look like. Now, keep in mind, the president's budget never goes anywhere. It dies. So it's, it's sort of an idealistic wish list, if you will. But the New York Times is reporting documents they obtained show that Mr. Biden's first budget request as president calls for the federal government to spend $6 trillion in the 2022 fiscal year and for total spending to rise to $8.2 trillion by 2031. Wow. Uh, The proposal shows the sweep of Mr. Biden's ambitions to wield government power to help more Americans attain the comforts of a middle class life and to lift U.S. industry to better compete globally in an economy the administration believes will be dominated by a race to reduce energy emissions and combat climate change. That's sounding pretty good so far. Oh, one last news tidbit before we move on. U.S. jobless claims fell to 406,000, a new pandemic low. I guess we are on the right track. Okay, let's take a moment to regroup and come back on the other side with that conversation I promised you about the United States of War. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. Hey, this is Brad. Our nightmare election may be over, but new ones are on the way. Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to do it. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to make an automated monthly pledge of any amount you like or even just a one-time-only contribution to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. The fight for voting rights, civil rights, and to save our planet continues. Please help us continue that fight independently over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate right now. Go ahead, do it right now. Thanks. Yeah. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. 
absolutely nothing. Say it again. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today, filling in for Brad and Desi on the broadcast. So, you know, President Biden announced a few weeks ago that he'd withdraw all American troops from Afghanistan by September 11th, the 20th anniversary of the attack. But now military officials say that the withdrawal is on track to finish early, like in mid-July. The fact is, there's no reason we should have been in Afghanistan for 20 years. But it seems that when the United States sends troops anywhere, they usually leave at least a few behind. So I thought today was a good day to talk with David Vine. He's professor of anthropology at American University in Washington and author of United States of War, a global history of America's endless conflicts from Columbus to the Islamic State. David explains, among a lot of other things, that in our 245-year existence, the United States has been involved in war for all but 11 of those years. So, David Vine, the United States of War. I don't mean the United States of War, the title of the book, as a, as a metaphor. I mean that the United States as a country, really since independence, but in profound ways in the last 20 years, has become a country defined by war and, and that our lives, our everyday lives in ways both seen and unseen have, have become profoundly defined by war. Right. And and in fact, um, you have uh, in the book a series of maps. And one, I just, I'm going to put one up on the screen right now that's just in your face. Um, this says, the Empire of the United States of America. And it shows a, a, a completely red United States map and a lot of other territories. And, and so what, what are we looking at here? What is this telling us? Well, I'm so glad you found it and and enjoy it. Uh, really, in, in a certain way, this map was inspired by the kinds of children's place maps that one sees or maps that children get to draw in. But typically, when it comes to the United States, defines the United States as, as the 50 states. Sometimes they don't even bother to include Alaska and Hawaii. So it's right. just the 48 contiguous uh-huh. states. This map attempts to more honestly depict what the United States is. And that is, first and foremost, an empire. And that the United States, the book shows, has been an empire since independence. But today, the empire of the United States looks like the 50 states that many are familiar with, plus the seven colonies that people often overlook. Frequently, they're called territories. I called them territories for a long time. And I've given up on that, as of many people who live in in these colonies, because they are in a colonial relationship with the rest of the United States. And we're talking about Puerto Rico and Guam, American Samoa, the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands, the U.S. Virgin Islands, and Washington, D.C., my hometown, Mm -hmm. um, which has slightly more power than the other colonies. And then Guantanamo Bay, which people often forget about entirely. They might think about the prison when there's some... Uh, momentum finally to to close the prison years after President Obama promised to do so. Um, But people forget about the rest of the base. It's about the size of Washington, D.C., in fact, and is a colony. It's plopped down in the middle of Cuba, and the United States has held it since 1903. Wow. Um, so, so we are, this is an empire, right? And, uh, as much as, you know, many may protest the, the, the language, the vernacular, that's what it is. We conquer territories and it's an empire. Afghanistan had been known as, um, the, the graveyard of empires. It, it, it 
bear some responsibility for the breaking apart of the Soviet Union, doesn't it? Their invasion of Afghanistan, if my history is correct. And so we went in, and it is now America's longest war. Obviously, there was no exit strategy. We got in there because George W. Bush, who was a doofus of the nth degree, uh, who probably never thought anything through except that maybe he was going to enrich himself and his oil buddies in invading Afghanistan and Iraq. Maybe I'm oversimplifying things, but I tend to do that. Um, but we've spent 20 years there. Uh, did nobody consider that it is the, the graveyard of empires? Apparently not carefully enough. I think they were caught up in their own power and in a kind of hubris that has, has often been the downfall of, of empires for, for millennia. I, I think, you know, the, the George W. Bush administration, whatever their motivations, and whatever they're thinking at the time, I think we have to recognize that the decisions they made and put into effect, which were then perpetuated by Presidents Obama and Trump, it's important to note, for the most part, perpetuated. The decisions the George W. Bush administration made after the attacks of 9-11 have been catastrophic beyond words, uh -huh. catastrophic for the countries in which the United States military has been fighting and catastrophic for the United States itself. Again, often in ways that, that people aren't sadly aware enough about, um, largely because the costs of these wars for the United States have been paid for with a credit card that is the United States has taken on tremendous debt that will be paid off for generations to come, or certainly for years and years to come, uh, rather than in the past, U.S. wars have been fought by raising taxes, so people right. felt them immediately. So if you didn't have a member of your family or weren't yourself in the military, um, in many ways, people were their lives were very distant from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and Pakistan, it went over the border um, in Yemen and Somalia and Libya and the Philippines. Uh, U.S military personnel have been fighting in at least 25 countries since 2001. So the war, the wars, plural, that the Bush administration launched were not just those in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, but were a really global war. Um, and it's important to note that, you know, sometimes, especially so many years later, people tend to think these wars were inevitable. These wars were never inevitable. These wars were a matter of choice. The George W. Bush administration had other choices that it could have made in responding to the attacks of 9-11, namely, and most importantly, responding to them as the crimes that they were. And, and research shows that, in fact, uh, responses to terrorist acts that it take the form of criminal justice responses and intelligence gathering responses right. are far more effective than, than the use of war, which tends, as has been the case in, in the global war on terror, to create more terrorists, to create more sure. people who would use terrorism as a, a, a tool. Uh, the, the, the threat of militants who would use terrorist acts against the United States and others around the world is far greater today than it was on 9-11. Oh, without uh, and a doubt. This, and in fact, I mean, if you remember the, the, the whole thing about, um, uh, and it's, it's 20 years ago now, so it's a bit foggy. Pardon the, the old age here. But that, you know, what we realized was, uh, Osama bin Laden wanted to hurt American society to, to take us down. Um, and I would say he was successful. Everything here changed. Due to, after the 9-11 attacks, we got the Patriot Act, which truly infringed on our civil liberties. Um, and we, we went into this war mode. Um, uh, and, and so much more. Um, 
everything got bad after that. And it's because of the constraints that we put on ourselves, kind of, in response to what they did. Um, uh, and I would, I would say that he did, he got exactly what he wanted. Am I wrong? Yeah, I, no, I, I don't think you are. I think the, the U.S. government gave bin Laden and al-Qaeda exactly what they wanted. Yeah. They gave them a war. They gave them a platform. And uh, they gave them a kind of publicity that was greater than they could have ever dreamed uh, about. And, and that only helped in their recruitment. And, and, and research, again, shows that, that uh, the presence of, in fact, U.S. bases and troops, whatever they're doing, um, frequently uh, aids the recruitment of militant groups that use terrorism as a as a as a tactic, uh, and uh, we should we should be specific though about who made these decisions. Yes, it was the George W. Bush administration. It mm-hmm. wasn't, of course, the royal or global we. Right. Um, right. But there were plenty of Democrats yes, who who got in line, literally got in line behind the Bush administration and enabled these wars and cheer cheerled these wars. And uh, sadly, far too many of the, the folks who, who were cheerleaders throughout these wars or, or directed them are still in positions of power. I, I think there are many signs that, that thinking about how the United States engages with the world, thinking about U.S. foreign policy is in the process of a very significant transformation. Uh, basic principles of U.S. foreign policy are being questioned like that of maintaining literally hundreds of military bases, today around 800 military bases outside the 50 states in Washington, D.C. And that's the other thing that that my map, the, the Empire of the United States, depicts, not just the colonies, not just the states, uh, but also the military bases that the United States government has used to encircle the globe and which has fueled and, not, and enabled uh, these long series of wars, now 20 years of, of war, um, and, and an even longer history of war, as, as my book details, the, the, the last 20 years of war actually aren't all that exceptional at all. Wow. Uh, my research has shown that, that the United States military has fought in every year in U.S. history with Except the exception 11? of 11. 11. Yeah. I saw that. I was going to ask you about that. What were the 11 years that we weren't involved in a war? There were a few years in the 1930s. There were a few years uh, in the 1950s and a few at the end of the 19th century. But by some estimates, the United States has never been at peace. And in certain senses, of course, the United States has never been at peace. Uh, so there are longer term patterns that are directly connected to the blueprint for the United States that, that the founders envisioned. And that was modeling the United States after the European empires of wow. the day. Wow. And the, the, the United States has, has continued to be an empire into the present, and although it has transformed over time. Uh, but I think what's, what's important to focus on now is, is transforming that empire. And one of the things my book calls for is, is a process of de-imperialization. And this can sound, I mean, it can sound radical to some to even call the United States an empire, let alone to call for de-imperializing <laughs> the United States. But I, I, I fear, and, and your comments earlier alluded to it, that if we don't dramatically transform the United States and transform how we engage with the rest of the world, and, and thus also how we, of course, uh, pursue policy domestically, mm-hmm. if we don't, we will, like empires past, crumble right. in uh, either bankruptcy or absolute abject destruction or some combination of the two. Right. And I agree with you on all this. Uh, Again, David Vine is our guest. His uh, latest book 
is the United States of War. And uh, again, it's the third in a series. Um, the other two, um, one is uh, dealing with bases. It's the base nation, how U.S. military bases abroad harm America and the world. And you talked about that. And you have a lot of maps in this book. So I showed you the one, the Empire one. This is one on U.S. military bases abroad in 2020. This was from last year. So it shows how we are everywhere. And and I bring this up to point out that, um, you know, I, I don't agree with Donald Trump on anything. And I and I and I don't trust his motivations for anything that he did. So when he talked about we find out now that after he lost the election, he tried to order the military to withdraw from everywhere around the world. Now, as much as I'd like to see us withdraw from our from around the world, obviously that's not the way you do it. You have to do it in a organized manner so to to have the least harm to to affect the least harm on the nations that we are ostensibly aiding by being there. Um, Donald Trump just wants to blow things up and uh, aggrandize himself or whatever. That's the wrong move, but that's the right goal to have, isn't it? Ultimately, it is. And, and there are people across the political spectrum who've now come to that same conclusion. And, and Trump is a sign. He's not, I mean, he's, he's an aberration in, in in some ways, but but generally speaking, he's actually quite reflective of larger trends. And and w- with the case of bases abroad, he's a reflection of growing questioning among Republicans and libertarians, as well as people on the left, like myself, who are questioning why the United States is maintaining around 800 bases in around 80 countries and colonies around the world, and whether this, in fact, is protecting the United States or protecting anyone in the world. Uh, these bases are tremendously costly, and that's often why people on, on the right are critical of them. Uh, upwards of fifty-one billions of, of upwards of excuse me, fifty-one billion dollars a year goes to just maintain and run these bases, let alone the troops that we we need to pay to 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 be stationed on them. Uh, and of course, this is money that could be spent elsewhere. It could be spent elsewhere by the military to protect the borders of the United States, to mm-hmm. protect the United States itself. Um, and of course, it could be used as so much of the military budget should be to address domestic needs that have gone so wanting. These bases abroad have not, of course, protected us against COVID or other pandemics. Uh, spending $6.4 trillion, $6.4 trillion, that's the total cost of the post 9-11 wars just as of last October. So now that it's inching closer to $7 trillion that U.S. taxpayers have spent to wage war since 2001. We need to think about not just the horrific waste that that entails, but also what could we have done with $7 trillion? Similarly, what could we do with the money that, that we're spending to build and maintain this hugely robust infrastructure of bases abroad that so frequently damage the places where they're located and frequently inflame military attentions. Uh, we think it, it, one of the things that that map and others in the book attempt to do is to encourage people in the United States in particular to think about how would we feel if we were surrounded by Chinese bases right. or Russian bases right. or Iranian bases? There isn't a single base belonging to Russia or China or Iran anywhere near the borders of the United States. Meanwhile, there are literally hundreds surrounding each of those countries, as well as North Korea, of course. We should not be surprised if those countries and their leaders feel threatened by the presence of our bases near their borders. We would feel threatened too. 
and we right. would likely respond militarily in some fashion. U.S. bases abroad are not just enabling war, not just making war possible, but actually making war more likely in a whole variety of ways. And that's one of my deepest fears, of course, right now, is the potential for uh, a war between the United States and China. There are far too many completely irresponsible U.S. leaders, military leaders, civilian leaders, who are talking about the inevitability of war with China, which should be horrifically frightening to us. These two nuclear-armed powers, the two wealthiest countries on Earth, uh, the, the the idea of even a minimal clash is is beyond frightening, and we should not pretend or fantasize that a, that a, a, a conflict could be contained to just some sort of minimal clash. Uh, the, the the disregard for human lives, military lives, and civilian lives is, again, uh, beyond frightening. Well, it's true, and it goes even further because the idealist in me, which is pretty strong in, in the many uh, facets, um, says, we, you know, Joe Biden just increased in his budget the amount that we're spending on military, and it's 700 and some odd billion dollars. It's obscene, and yet Congress is fighting over helping people who are legitimately hurting since this pandemic, people who are at risk of losing everything they ever had because they lost their job due to this pandemic. They are fighting relief efforts here at home, but they give a, you know, a a free, free credit card to, for the war effort. Um, When, when do we change the way we think? And, and I'm hoping it's with this next generation because they seem to, they seem to be engaged and are not willing to stand for things for the status quo the way things have been. I think that's exactly right. I, I have a lot of hope for the the next generations, although we, we need urgently to change things Before, now. Yeah, and we shouldn't, you know, folks in, in older generations don't get a pass. We, no. we urgently need to to transform. Uh, this system of war, a system of, of really permanent war. The, the Biden administration's announcement of the withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan is a good sign. Right. And he's doing it in a more responsible way than, than Trump attempted to. Yes. You know, uh, part of what my call and the call of, of people who are part of a, a transpartisan left-right coalition uh, of academics and think tank types and activists and others who are calling for the closure of bases abroad, we're, we're saying, you know, we, we need to close bases abroad, we need to end the endless wars, but we have to do so in a responsible way, first and foremost, by building up our diplomatic presence and diplomatic tools while we draw down our bases and while we end the endless wars. But we do have to go far beyond the war in Afghanistan, because US troops are operating in and fighting in many other countries. Uh, we need not just to end these wars, but again, to, to fundamentally transform how U.S. leaders and the country thinks about security and how we think about how we engage with the world. And when it comes to security, I think there are, again, as you pointed out, people in, in the younger generations who see that security begins at home. It begins with the horrific debt that, right. that, that you know college students are in right now. It begins with having health care, no matter whether you have a job or not. Um, it begins with with a proper high school and elementary school and pre-K education. It begins with the infrastructure and affordable housing uh, in our communities that has been neglected for 
literally decades Absolutely. as we've been building up a war economy. We have one in five children in this country go to bed hungry at night. This is the wealthiest nation on the planet in the history of the world. And we don't even have the oil reserves that they do in the Middle East. But we have more money. And yet you would think we're in dire straits because we can't afford, um, you know, basic health care for our citizens. Well, we can't afford it. We can afford anything we, we want. We can't afford it all. And we'd be able to afford a whole lot more if we stopped pouring billions and trillions of dollars into the military. The only problem is there are some who say, and we're not going to have time to get into this whole subject. This opens a whole other can of worms, but our um, you know, military industrial complex is a huge jobs program. We're going to have to replace the jobs of all those people. And hey, wouldn't a Green New Deal and Biden's new infrastructure jobs plan work perfectly in that scenario? You can replace the jobs of all the military contractors, all the people who work uh, building weapon systems that we shouldn't be selling to Israel or Saudi Arabia or anyone else for that matter. But it's going to take a huge shift in the way this country thinks. And unfortunately, uh, we have this Republican Party that hopefully, if, if my guest on Friday, if he's right, they will be decimated in 2022, and then we'll be able to move along and do what we need to do. But we have to be involved. And David Vine, I'm rushing because we're getting close to the hour. On your website at davidvine.net, under the new book heading, you have a, a, a subheading called Taking Action. And you have a lot of movements, a lot of peace uh, organizations that people can join in. I worry that because we're not, we don't have the draft, so our kids aren't being sent off, pulled from our homes, as in Vietnam, that we're not feeling the pain. We don't have bases right here. We we haven't had a hit except for 9-11 on American soil uh, and Pearl Harbor, but that was Hawaii. Um, so we don't feel the pain, so we're not, we don't feel like it's there. And, and America, you know, has blinders on um, the show graphic I used for today is this old poster that I remember because I'm old from the 70s. The war is not healthy for children and other living things. Um, and it, that kind of activism seems to have been forgotten. Maybe we need a new anti-war movement or a beefed up one. We need people to stand up and say enough already. We do. We need more people to stand up and say enough already in whatever fashion. You know, I think the defund the police movement is something of a model. Uh, yeah, but the, we, the know, messaging to- is horrible because I'm sorry, I disagree with I, I agree with the sentiment that w- we need to change the way police work. But you have a whole swath of this nation who's defund the police. Get rid of those commie crazy people. We need the police. We need better police. We need police who don't. You know, I don't. I don't, I, I don't want to just distract from 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 this. Gotcha. I, my my point there was, was just to say that we need to to think as broadly as possible yes. to transform fundamentally the uh, the role of the military in our society. Most definitely. Uh, you know, I, your your poster is right on point, of course. And I, I think to connect to what you said about the military industrial complex, we need to remember that that Eisenhower showed us yes, he did. the the danger of the military industrial complex and showed us that that military spending, spending on war, is a kind of theft. And I think we need to go back to that and show people that, that they are being directly damaged by war, even if they aren't feeling it. That's you know, right. the, the COVID pandemic has had such terrible effects, not just because of President Trump's incompetence and neglect, but also because we've spent decades investing in war in the military, not in pandemic preparedness, That's right. not in public health, not in universal health care. Uh, we, we need this sort of level of transformation. And I, I do think that 
that calling for a, a national draft, a reinstitution of the draft, actually, and perhaps a bit counterintuitively, would be a good idea to I agree. make people feel more directly the, the effects of war. That's right, because then everyone's got, quote, skin in the game. Because your kid could be called up for service, and then all of a sudden, then it's real. And for too many Americans, it's not real, and it falls on uh, the economically disadvantaged, those who need a way out so they join the military. It is a way to, you know, earn a living and be taken care of and and have your immediate future charted, well, unless you get sent to an active war zone and killed. Um, but, yeah, it, it takes the burden of feeling the the personal effects of war away from the very few unfortunate Americans who do feel it to put it on everyone. I'd like to see some of these members of Congress have their kids be called up to war, and then maybe they'll have a change in attitude when it comes to voting for that war funding. Absolutely. I think they should also pay attention to the, you know, people make the jobs argument about, about investing in the military and the Pentagon and in war. War spending is a really poor economic strategy. Uh-huh. Um, it's a really poor job creator. Yes, it does create many jobs, but we can create far more jobs if we invest the same amount of money in healthcare or education or infrastructure. So I think we need to, to make that point and show people that this is a really short-sighted and, and, and really deleterious uh, kind of a, a investment in our economy and certainly in our well-being and the well-being of people around the world and needs urgent transformation. You got it. Um, the book is The United States of War, A Global History of America's Endless Conflicts from Columbus to the Islamic State. I'll put a link up on the blog where I post today's show with all the information about the book. Uh, and David, you can find on Twitter at David S. Vine. And your website that has a lot of information and all those maps that I showed and lots more is at davidvine.net. David, thank you so much for joining us today. This is a, it's an important conversation that we need to keep having until things change. I couldn't agree more. And Nicole, thank you so much for having me on. You can find, as I said, David's work at davidvine.net. The book is The United States of War. We're going to lighten things up in a moment, because after that, we need a little levity. We need to lighten things up. And hey, it's almost Memorial Day. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. Hey, this is Desi Doyen of the Green News Report and the broadcast. Did you know that we are completely listener-supported? You can help us stay 100% independent over your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. We're back on the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler. I host the Nicole Sandler Show based at NicoleSandler.com. I invite you to stop by anytime. No paywall to stop you from checking anything out. Just wander (laughs) at your leisure. Uh, Now that the serious stuff is out of the way, I thought it's time to lighten up a little bit. When we spent all that time talking about war, we need a change of pace. Now, I know that you're familiar with the Marsh family. Because I turned Brad on to them, and he turned you on to them. They are a family based in Kent, England, who during the pandemic decided to put their musical talents to work to brighten up the world. And they started doing these song parodies. 
and they're just charming and wonderful. They're all uber talented. And with each video that I've seen of theirs, I get more impressed. I'll put a link to their YouTube page at bradblog.com where we post the Bradcast each day. So you can check out the full body of their work along with a link to the interview that I did with them. I, I can't resist this family. I love them. But I thought today I'd share with you, not their most recent one, it's the, it's, it's the one before the most recent one. Here's the premise, and I thought this would work today because, hey, we're coming up on the Memorial Day weekend, and now that most of us, right, are vaccinated, we may be going out and seeing friends, perhaps for the first time in over a year. So, in this case, the four Marsh children are sort of scolding their parents a little bit for their behavior in their first post-vaccination outing with friends. So, let's consider this as a cautionary word or five before you go out partying for Memorial Day. This is a mashup, a parody of a mashup of two songs. One is... An ABBA song. And frankly, I'm not really familiar with ABBA, but it's an ABBA song called Slipping Through My Fingers. The other one was a major part of my adolescence. I wore this record out. It was Cat Stevens' Father and Son. So with no further ado, here is the Marsh family slipping through their fingers, father and sons on the broadcast. It's now time to rehydrate Just relax, you look queasy You're still drunk, that's your fault Don't mix lager with Quantrow Find a shirt, better shop If you want, have a coffee Look at you, you are old, stale and craggy You could once have big nights out And recovery was easy You'd become in lockdown like a daisy call So next time, don't drink a lot Don't drink everything they've got For you'll be filled with shame and sorrow When your liver shot How can I show self-restraint When I get to see my mates again It's almost been a year Since they saw me For the first time we could talk We got hammered I missed him now The next day My hangover won't go Oh 
This feeling after boozing lasts forever A blackout headache splintering my world I had some Alka-Seltzer but still after Need paracetamol Sipping through her fingers all the time She tried to catch up after COVID She reached a limit Sipping through her fingers all the time Did I really see off town that wine? First time I drink, I should be slowing She kept on going It's your turn to feel ashamed Passing gas like a donkey Show your sons what results When too much has been consumed Trying to dance, falling down Making out like you're not married Look a role model from 1918 All that time stuck inside Seeing only friends who had whacked by was hard And at last we'd been rewarded We drank all night and fell asleep I snored like a mountain sheep Now I'm in pain But I know it will only last a day I hope the pain will go
Now, if you go to bradblog.com, you'll see a link to the video for that song because the only thing better than listening to it is watching them while they do it. They are the Marsh family. They're in Kent, England, and they've kept many of us around the world entertained through this pandemic. Good work, guys. And with that, we come to the end of another edition of the Bradcast. I'm Nicole Sandler, happy to step in when Brad and Desi need the help. And let me tell you what's going to happen on the next episode. There's a new book out by Edward Isaac DeVore. He writes for The Atlantic, but his book chronicling the 2020 presidential election just hit stores this week. And I will talk to him on the show. The book is called Battle for the Soul, Inside the Democrats' Campaigns to Defeat Trump. I'll try not to make it too traumatic. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Nicole Sandler for Brad and Desi on the Bradcast. And oh yeah, good luck world.